The following podcast is from Arlington Countryside Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org. number of years ago, uh, I decided, my wife and I decided it was time for me to go back to school. I needed to finish up my degree. Uh, but it was going to be a challenge because we had four young kids, and I had a full-time job at a parachurch ministry, and I had a part-time job as youth pastor at my church. And so time was at a premium. We had no money. We had a ton of kids, but other than that, it was perfect time to go back to school, right? And, and so, but we just felt like now was the time. We needed to do it. And so I got this in this program at Trinity, uh, right over here in Deerfield, where a working adult could go to class uh, one night a week for 50 weeks in a row and, and get your degree at the end of that time. And of course, there was a ton of work outside of the classroom, but decided to enroll with this. The problem was I was so limited on my availability. Monday nights were the only time I could possibly attend class. I had commitments and obligations every other night of the week. And And they didn't offer a class on Mondays except one. The problem was I wasn't eligible for it. This class that they had on Monday nights was called an urban ministries class. And what what it was was this wealthy benefactor of Trinity had fully scholarshiped for this group of inner city pastors to get their degrees. And so this was a group of inner city pastors to get their degree fully scholarship. That was the only class available. But the problem was I was a suburban youth pastor. I wasn't eligible for that, right? But I talked the school into letting me join that class. And of course, I would pay normally, right? Um, I wasn't scholarshiped or anything. I'd pay normally and be a part of this class. And so that's what I did. Well, this was a huge stretch of uh, step of faith for us because we really didn't know how we were going to pay for it. And we figured we we're going to have to take out loans and scrape by and do whatever we could. And so the the payments were stretched out over a number of months, and even then there'd be a big balance at the end. But uh, I showed up for class early in the first month to make my first payment, to make my first installment. And I stepped up to the window at the school where you make this payment, and I gave her my name and my student ID number, and I, I said, you know, I'm ready to write the check. Well, she's looking at stuff, going through things, and all of a sudden she leaves, she comes back with somebody else, and they're conferring and talking, and I'm like, what's the big deal? Just I want to pay. Just take my money, right? But they were talking, and then all of a sudden they look up at me and they say, Mr. Corley, there must be some mistake, but um, you don't have a balance. You don't have a, a balance. You, you've been, your schooling's been paid for. And I'm like, no, that's a mistake. It, it couldn't be. And they said, well, no, you're part of the Urban Ministries class, and that's a full-ride scholarship. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's the mistake. You see, I'm not... I'm not an inner city pastor, I'm not eligible for that scholarship. I'm just like going through with that cohort because it's only night I'm available. And they're like, well, sir, I don't know what to tell you, but you've been included in that scholarship and your way has been completely paid in order to get your degree. So you don't need to worry about it. Well, I thought about it for like three seconds and said, okay, <laughs> I wasn't going to argue 
But I was blown away. This was beyond our wildest dreams or imaginations or prayer requests. And when I got home that night, I, I told my wife and we, we wept, we cried with this unbelievable provision from God. Even now when I think about it, I get goosebumps. I got goosebumps on my forearm. It was just such an amazing gift from God. Gift from God. Have you ever been given a gift from God? Where God just reaches down to you and just boom, gives you something, does something for you. You didn't deserve it, but you get it anyway. Folks, that's called grace. I didn't deserve that scholarship. I had a debt that I was going to owe and that debt was wiped out like that. It was just grace. It was a gift from God. And that's the theological concept we're going to be considering this morning as we continue our teaching series, uh, Reform. Uh, last day of this month, October 31st, we celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. And in so doing, uh, it was the seminal moment in the Reformation. The Reformation was a movement um, that changed society, that changed the church. Um, they saw the abuses and the corruption that was there at that time in the Roman Catholic Church, and they sought to return the church to the original teachings of Christ and the apostles. And so there's basic fundamental truths that drove the revolution. And we looked at these last week, and I, I want to review them real quickly. There were five guiding principles of the Reformation. Now, I want you to know this. If you were to read the writings of Zwingli or Calvin or Martin Luther or any other of the reformers, you wouldn't find these five principles listed. These are five solas, five Latin phrases that, that encapsulate the driving principles of the Reformation. But if you went back to the original writings of the reformers, you couldn't find them anywhere because they're not there. Uh, what we're looking at with these five solas is they've really been compiled by church historians and by uh, theologians that have kind of summarized, does that make sense? Kind of encapsulated the driving teachings that were included within the Reformation. And so that's where these come from. Uh, and so here's the five solas. First of all, sola scriptura. That's scripture alone. We looked at this last week. It's the conviction that the Bible alone is our authority. Now, I've got to stop here and say that uh, I, I was on a website that does uh, Latin pronunciation because I wanted to make sure that I, I um, pronounced these, each of these Latin phrases right. And what was so funny is at this website, the, the, the voice has a real heavy Italian accent. And so it's not sola scriptura, it's sola scriptura, sola scriptura. And you got to do your hand like this too, okay? I'm not sure why, but, but you just have, it's sola scriptura, like that, right? So in my mind, I might be saying, so, I mean, I might allow be saying sola scriptura, but in my, in my mind, I'm thinking sola scriptura, okay? So as we're going through this, feel free to go like that if you want to, okay? Okay, that's annoying. I apologize. I'll say the rest of them normal, okay? But we got sola scriptura, scripture alone. The second guiding principle, the Reformation was sola gratia. Sola gratia is grace alone. That's what we're looking at today. Uh, it's the conviction we are saved by the grace of God alone. Sola fide is faith alone. We are saved through faith alone in Christ. 
Sola Christus, sola Christus, Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. And then finally, sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. We live for the glory of God alone. And so these five solas are what we'll be focusing on for the five Sundays in October. And so today, again, sola gratia, grace alone. We are saved by the grace of God. So what do we mean by grace? Grace is a super basic concept in the New Testament, in the church, and understanding that word grace, what it means is is an important starting point. So let me give you a basic definition of the word grace as used in the New Testament. The word grace means unmerited favor or undeserved blessing. Just like that scholarship that was given to me, I didn't earn it, I wasn't eligible for it, I didn't deserve it, but it was given to me anyway. Folks, that was a great example of grace. And so, in relationship to what we're talking about this morning and what the New Testament teaches, the fact is this, that our salvation is a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it, you never will deserve it, but it's given to you as a gift. Now we understand the difference between a wage and a gift, right? If I hand you a $20 bill and say, hey, here's a $20 bill, and while you're at it, before you leave, could you wash my car? Wage or gift? Definitely a wage, right? Because there's strings attached. You got to do something to earn that $20 bill. But if I just hand you a $20 bill and say, here you go, and walk away, no strings attached, that's a gift. And when you think about salvation as a gift, what it means is we don't do anything to earn it, to achieve it. It's a gift that we receive. It's a free gift. And there's a world of difference between receiving something because you've done something to earn it and receiving something just because the giver was generous. I want to take you to the quintessential passage of Scripture regarding grace, in my opinion. It's in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. This is so rich. There's so much here. Check it out. God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The idea of salvation being a gift is a direct assault on the extremely prevalent works mindset that's all around us. And it's all around us. If you were to stop 10 people on the street and ask them, How does a person get forgiven by God? Or how does a person make their way to heaven? And especially even if you talk to church-going people, religious people, the answers you'll hear over and over again are all works-based. And they'll say, oh, well, the way you get forgiven, the way you get God to accept you, the way you get to heaven is, and then they'll name, list things that you have to do got to start coming to church more regularly. You got to start obeying the Ten Commandments. You got to pay attention to the Sermon on the Mount. You got to uh, volunteer. You got to be a better person. You got to do this. You got to do that. But you see, it's a works-based mentality. And it's so strong and so prevalent that this concept of salvation being by grace trips people up. 
and it bothers people. And people can't embrace it. And the common responses you'll get when you talk to people about grace is they'll say, first of all, well, it seems too easy. There's got to be more to it than that, you know? And it's this idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? We're so cynical and we think, ah, there's got to be strings attached. You know, there's no way God's going to let you into heaven for free. I got to chip in somehow. Come on. There must be something I can do, right? But the second common attitude or response people often have is they say to them, they don't say this, but it's what they're thinking. Uh, This idea, well, I don't accept charity, you know? And to be told you can't earn your salvation, that it's a gift, that, that hurts the pride, right? And we think, well, I'm not that bad of a person, right? I'm not that bad of a person, and surely there's things I can do to make God like me. You know, let me try. Let me try. I can go to the church. I can start being a better person. I can do this. I can do that. And it's an assault on the pride to say, no, I I can't earn it. It's just about God's love for me. Recently, I had lunch with somebody, and I had the great opportunity to really talk about where they were at spiritually. And I had the opportunity to share the gospel with them real explicitly. And it was a great conversation. I mean, I, mean, I, I laid it out. And I laid it out as simple and as concise as I could, but I, I laid it all out. And the person's response to me was, Dave, I agree with everything you've just said. And you're right. From now on, I'm going to start trying harder. And I was like, nuts. (laughs) It didn't sink in. They didn't get it, right? And I had to backtrack and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. What I'm telling you is you don't have to try. It's not about trying harder. God loves you. He has a gift for you. And you just simply need to take it out of his hands by faith that God wants to give you his grace. That's what it's all about. Now, let me take you to Titus chapter 2. This is another great passage of scripture. It says, but God, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight. Now, I want you to notice it doesn't say because we're such lovable people that he made us right. It doesn't say because we try so hard that he made us right. What it says is because of his grace, his unmerited favor, his undeserved blessing, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Did you know grace is the thing that sets Christianity apart from virtually every other world religion. Virtually every other world religion is in the business of giving you advice on how to reach God. And so they'll hand you a rope, they'll hand you a ladder, they'll teach you how to build a staircase, and they'll say, if you pray these prayers facing this direction, and if you do this, and you do that, and you say this, and you say that, and it's advice, and if you are sincere, and you work hard, you'll probably get there. You might get there, right? And Christianity is the only world religion that doesn't give advice. It just proclaims news. 
And so when we come to people with the saving message of Jesus, we're not giving them any advice. We're simply telling them what's already happening. What we're telling them is that God loves you. He provided everything you need for forgiveness and salvation through the death of his son, the substitutionary death of his son on your behalf and his bodily resurrection. And everything's taken care of. All you need to do is believe it. All you need to do is embrace it. It's all been done for you. God's done everything you need to find eternal life and forgiveness. That grace sets us apart from every other religious system. It's not about trying harder for us. The truth is salvation is something that you receive, not something you achieve. Let me say it again. Salvation isn't something you achieve. It's something you just receive from God. Grace has always been God's modus operandi in dealing with the human race. I want to take you back to Deuteronomy. People of Israel... God's chosen people, right? We all know that. The people of Israel were God's chosen people. Well, why did God choose them? You ever think about that? There are a lot of different nations in the world. Why did God choose them? Well, he talked to them about that. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. And he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you from such a strong hand from your, with, with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." And so the Israelites, they had no inherent superiority of their surrounding nations. God chose them. They did not choose him. And you know what? That's the way it is with us. Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And see, that's true with each one of us. We didn't choose Jesus. He chose us. Now you say, well, now wait a minute. I remember a time where I chose Jesus. I crossed the line of faith. I asked him to come into my life. Yes, that's true. But the point to be made is you only chose him because he chose you. The only way you could possibly approach him is because he wooed you. Various circumstances in your life drew you towards him. But the whole thing was grace. And you know what? That act of faith you made to place your trust in him, to place your faith in him, that was a gift. The fact that you could place your faith in him was a gift from him. And so it's all about God. A biblical understanding of salvation is always God-centered, it's always God-centered, and it's always all about him and his grace. It was seen in the nation of Israel. And you know what? You think about how the nation of Israel started. Who's the father of the nation of Israel? It was Abraham, right? Abram. And do you remember, we looked at this in our summer series when we were in Hebrews 11, uh, that when God chose Abram, the dude was an idol worshiper. He didn't choose Abram because like, like hey, Abram, you get it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with you because you get it. He was an idol worshiper. He had no merit of his own whatsoever to be chosen by God, but God just reached down and says, you, I'm going with you. That's grace, and that's always been the way that God has dealt with the human race. Now, I want to talk about, in the time we have remaining, the need for grace. Why is grace so necessary? Why is it so important? Why is it such a big deal? Because here's the deal. If you don't understand the need for grace, you'll never appreciate it. And I want to suggest, if you don't understand our need for grace, 
you really won't understand grace to any great extent. And so I want to lay out for you the need for grace as found in Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, the first three chapters of this book, he's been laying out his case for man's need for salvation. Laying out the need. You can't get somebody saved unless you first convince them they need to be saved. And so the first three chapters are very dark, they're very harsh, they're very hard to take because he's laying out the sinfulness of human beings, right? And in Romans 3, where we're looking at here, he does something that was a common teaching technique for rabbis. It was called pearl stringing. And pearl stringing is when a rabbi would pluck various verses from the Old Testament and string them together as proof texts to prove a specific point. And so Paul's trying to prove a specific point here, so he starts pearl stringing. And he starts taking scriptures out of the Psalms and out of the book of Isaiah and strings them all together straight from scripture to prove his point. So look at the pearl stringing he did, starting at verse 10. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. The concept Paul is speaking of here, we've, we've applied a theological uh, uh, phrase to it called total depravity. Total depravity. And it's all-inclusive language here. No one, no one, everybody, everybody, all, all. It applies to the entire race. The phrase total depravity is derived from the Augustinian concept of the original sin. That Adam's sin, Adam's sin was passed on to the entire human race, so that we all have a propensity to sin. We're all by nature separated from God and in rebellion to him. And I remember when uh, a long time ago, I, I took a basic philosophy class at a community college, and we got to a point in class where we were studying the writings of Augustine. And I remember how, how um, there was, there was a, uh, a palpable hatred for Augustine by my classmates. They hated his writings. And the reason why is because he went against common cultural thought. Because common cultural thought says human beings are basically good. Have you heard that phrase before? That human beings are basically good? And Augustine comes along and says, nope. <laughs> he says human beings are totally depraved and separated from God, and have no merit of their own. And that really rubbed people the wrong way. And maybe you're sitting here now saying, ah, I'm not sure I like this. I'm not sure I agree with this. But folks, it's what God's word proclaims. Now, I think, I think what trips people up sometimes when you start talking about total depravity is they misunderstand the phrase. Total depravity does not mean that men and women are as evil as they could possibly be. That's not what it means when it says we have total depravity. We could get more evil. Trust me, I could get a lot more evil, all right? And trust me when I say our society could get a lot worse. You hear a lot of Christians bellyaching right now about how bad everything is, and it may be really bad, but I'll tell you this, folks, it could get a lot worse. And there's been times in the course of history in certain cultures where it's been a lot worse, all right? So as bad as it might be, 
okay? So we're not talking about total depravity as in like, it couldn't get any worse. Total depravity simply means that every part of us has been tainted by sin. That every part of us as humans has been corrupted by sin. And in that sense, it's total depravity. Another phrase that's sometimes used is total inability. Total inability to please God, to earn his favor. And in this passage in Romans 3, he, talks, he uses some phrases that show how we're totally corrupted by sin in our mind, in our heart, and in our will. In our mind, he says, no one is truly wise. In our unregenerate state, we don't know God or his ways. Heart, no one is seeking God. You see, we seek the gifts, not the giver. We want God's blessings. We want God to meet our needs. But do we want God? We don't seek God. Now you say, Dave, wait, what about spiritual seekers? What about people who all of a sudden want to start attending church and all of a sudden on their own start reading their Bible and it seems like they're seeking God? How can you say no one seeks God? Well, you know what? Even a person who's doing that, why are they doing that? How are they doing that? It's because God is initiating that. God is wooing them towards himself. And the only reason why they're even making feeble attempts to seek him is because God sought them first. And then lastly, our will has been corrupted. No one does good. The human race struggles to do right and to please God. You know what I think is the greatest evidence of total depravity, of original sin? I think the greatest evidence you can find is just to spend a little bit of time with a three-year-old. Have you done that recently? They are unregenerate little heathens, okay? They are self-centered little heathens. And as a parent, think about it. Do you have to teach a little kid how to be bad or how to be good? You got to teach them how to be good. That's the job as a parent. Being bad comes really easy. Very, very natural. It's the being good stuff that they struggle with and what parents have to emphasize. Folks, in my opinion, that's great proof. Okay, pearl stringing. Real quick, Romans also shows this. Uh, Paul points out our mouths reveal our true condition. You know, we can be so mean with the things we say that our hearts that our, that our tongues reveal our heart's condition. Uh, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 12, you brood of snakes. How could evil men like you speak about what is good and right? For whatever is in your heart determines what you say. And so you see how people treat each other, how people talk to each other, and you realize something's desperately wrong. And then in verse 18, the ultimate low point is that people have no fear of God. They have no fear of God at all. Fear not only meaning reverence for God, but any terror of coming judgment. It's not there. And at this point, all moral restraint is off and God is mocked. Here are the implications. Folks, do you understand why we went here? Because you have to understand our sinful condition in order to understand it and appreciate the need for grace. And so here's the implications. One, we are morally and spiritually bankrupt before God. We've got nothing to chip in. We've got nothing to offer. Nada. Second, we can't contribute anything to our salvation. We contribute nothing. And we're mistaken if we think we do. And then third, the sinfulness of sin requires an abundant and amazing grace. Our spiritual condition is so dire. The only chance we have 
is if there's a loving, generous God who's willing to hook us up based upon nothing within us. And the good news is that's exactly the God we have. A generous God who's willing to hook us up even though there's no merit on our part whatsoever. I want to encourage you, if you're still trying to reach God by trying harder and being good, give it up. You don't need to try any longer. You don't need to try harder. It's beyond your capabilities. God loves you. He has a gift for you found in Christ. Childlike faith, you receive that for yourself. You know what? The grace of God should provoke us to worship, to praise God. Worship is the correct response to the truth of sola gratia. This quote by Martin Luther is perfect. Check it out. Martin Luther said this, Sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. The law reveals guilt, fills the conscience with terror, and drives men to despair. Much less is sin taken away by man-invented endeavors. The fact is, the more a person seeks credit for himself by his own efforts, the deeper he goes into debt. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Arlington Countryside Church, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org.